Welcome back to The Francisca Show, a Jewish coffeehouse podcast where we encourage fellow artists and entrepreneurs to collaborate and support each other while sharing their stories. I am Francisca, a singer, composer, music producer, coach, and also your host. Welcome back to The Francisca Show. Thanks for coming back, for sharing this podcast with your friends, really helping us grow this podcast. I really, really appreciate all the effort you've been putting in. Every time you reach out, send feedback, suggestions, any ways you can help. I love hearing from you. And of course, happy Purim. Today's Purim. I'm so excited to be entertaining you today. I hope you are having an amazing and happy time. I know for women, sometimes this is a complicated holiday. We don't feel like it's catered for us or it is our holiday, even though Queen Esther did save the day. Definitely check out my song that I released last year. I put it out with a whole write-up about Esther and how she really requested and demanded that Chazal institute a day in her honor for everyone to remember what Esther did for the Jewish people. The link to the song is in the show notes as well. And just before we start the show, I'd like to thank our sponsor. I want to share with you products and services that I have used and have been very happy with. So if you're looking or you're thinking about straightening your teeth, I definitely recommend using Mod Mouth and make sure to tell them Francisca sent you and then tell me and I will hook you up with a free gift. They will hook you up with a $50 value whitening kit. I've used them. I've been super happy. So definitely I recommend you check them out. I have all the information in the show notes of how you could reach them. Happy Purim and enjoy the show. Thank you for coming back and listening to the show. Today with us we have Sarah Blau an author, artist, and public speaker living in Crown Heights, also the author of two dozen children's books. Am I right? 20 that are published and a few more on the way, yeah. (laughs) Wow. Sarah's from Crown Heights or living in Crown Heights right now. Welcome to the show. It's so nice to have you. Likewise. Thank you. Great to be here. So, okay, so you live in Crown Heights with your husband and four children, and you've clearly accomplished so much. I'd love to find out more about your upbringing and how you got started. And was the children's book like your first artistic project? So I know I lumped a bunch of questions together, but I'm assuming they're somehow connected. So I'll let you connect it in your way. Okay, thank you. So I grew up in Crown Heights. My husband's from Crown Heights. So we're both born and bred. And I was brought up with this idea as a Chabad girl that the Rebbe very much encouraged the arts and saw it as a tool for expressing creativity and for teaching children. And the Rebbe was very particular that there should actually be both boys and girls in illustrations and that pictures should include as many mitzvahs as possible. The Rebbe used to look over publications and and it always intrigued me and sort of validated my love of art, my love of expressing creativity. You know, the Rebbe actually even paid a $10,000 check towards the High Gallery in Kingston when they opened up to encourage them. And I've heard he's given money to artists. So I really grew up with this positive look on all form of artistic expression as a way to really touch people and a way to really inspire people. And I know that like in the Jewish world, post-Holocaust or whatever, there was a lot of suspicion toward arts and visual arts. It was maybe a little bit, people thought it was secular. There was always Judaica, but art itself, painting, I feel like that's part of the revolution and the explosion that we have in the from world today 
that people are recognizing that it's a powerful tool. And that really resonated with me. And I actually did my 12th grade term paper on it, researching different artists that had relationships with the Lubavitcher Rebbe and their correspondence. And it was just fascinating to me. I looked back at my notes from when I was in 12th grade and I found this article. There was this artist, Michal Short, and he was in touch with the Rebbe. He used to do different illustrations for Chabad publications. And the Rebbe once told him that his pictures should look like Ripley. That's the style that it should look like. It's fascinating to me. So I definitely grew up with that passion and love. My parents had sent me to art classes, seventh grade, 11th grade. And I knew I was going to do something to express. I needed to. I needed to do something to express creativity. I remember when I was in fifth grade, we had this book fair and everybody wrote a book. And I remember like confidently telling my teacher, like, I'm going to be an author. Like, I'm just going to do it. I didn't know how it would play out. You know, I came back from seminary, got married. I was teaching. And the truth is that a lot of my creative stuff is supplementary to my day-to-day -day job because like my day-to-day -day job in the summer, I direct a day camp during the year. I run the extracurricular in a high school, but I felt like I needed more. So how I started with the books, I had just had my second child. It was about eight years ago and my husband was working full-time and nights and he was out at night and I was really struggling. I was home alone. I felt lonely. I was struggling to lose weight. It was a hard time for me. My husband was actually the one who encouraged me. He's like, why don't you do something? Take on a project, take on something. You know, I already had my regular life and he's like, just write something. And that's really how it started. I literally wrote with a pen and paper, my first book, my idea for a book. I had just had a baby. So I was like, hey, let me write a story about a mother who has a baby. It actually didn't come out first, even though I wrote it first. It's called A Baby of Our Own with Achai. So I wrote one book, I wrote another book. And in the beginning, I didn't really have confidence to like actually send it to the publishers. I like kind of like emailed it to my sister-in-laws, you know, I was like, read this to your kids on a fast day. And it was really their support. They encouraged me. They're like, send this to a publisher. That's what I did. I sent it to publishers. I got one book accepted, another, and then been going from there specifically with, with the children's book. So you just kept writing and writing and submitting to the publishers and they kept releasing, publishing. So not everything. For every book that I have that's actually published, I probably have at least one or two manuscripts that were rejected. I really try not to get too connected to any of them because in the end of the day, the publishers have to sell. And there's a limited market of from buyers of books and there's limited styles. So they're only gonna publish something. Like I've had publishers tell me, I love the story, but it's not gonna make money. Can you give me example? Yeah, like what, what are they looking for? I'm so curious. They're looking for what's gonna sell. So for example, if you know, I wrote a story about kids on an airplane, I was like, oh, there's no books about like flying. And their response was like, well, maybe Chabad people fly everywhere, but there's not enough people traveling. Like, it's not enough. It's too much of a niche. Like, it wasn't a thing enough. And sometimes they don't like the style, or sometimes there are other books already on that topic, so it won't sell. But they're really looking for, like, an optionish book, they said, is going to sell. So one of my sons turned three, and I wrote My She Turns Three. I was very grateful that they accepted it. But I've had a lot of ideas that I felt were like, oh, my gosh, this is like a winning idea. You must take it. And they're like, you know, not exactly. So I write. I, I never consider it a waste to write because if something's – a book has to be written, and, and I feel this way about the articles that I write for women. I feel this way about paintings that I have to paint. If I don't sell it, it wasn't a waste. I needed to get it out to the world in whichever way I can. And so I do it. So cool. So I'm just curious more about the publishing aspect of it, just because we don't have so many children published authors on this podcast. So I think it's super interesting. 
you just bring the manuscript to them or you pitch it to them. Let's say they accept it. What's the process from there? So every publisher works a little bit different. Every publisher does work a little bit different. Like some of them will want you to come up with an artist and a finished manuscript. But because for me, it's a little bit part-time, I prefer to work with, you know, the Judaica Press or Achai, where I just give them the manuscript and I'm pretty much done. So I'm in the loop of the process. I see the illustrations. I can give feedback but they hire the illustrator they give the art direction and sometimes I dream about publishing on my own but then I know I I don't have the time for it so right now most of my books are published with either you know I have one with Israel Bookshop and then the rest are either Judaica Press or Achai I do have two books that are coming out that I was personally hired to write for different people as opposed to like the general publishers but they're not out yet I'll definitely share about it when it comes out but In terms of the process, it's kind of like I'm in the loop, but I'm not in charge, and I'm fine with that. So you probably get a smaller cut if you even do get a cut. So like I said, every publisher does something different. Some publishers give you royalties, but then you have to invest. It's like a business deal. You have to actually pay part of the artist. You could get dedications, which I actually did that. And then you get, so it was like a surprise in the mail, a check. What do you mean by dedications? You get people to sponsor? Right. Yeah. I got people to sponsor as opposed to just me doing all the investing. I got people to sponsor and then we had a little dedication and then I got royalties. But most of my books, they give a standard fee with a standard amount of free books that come along with it that I then could sell and make money on. But here's how it is. It's it's really supply and demand. In the firm world, there's a lot more people that want to write books than publishers. So for example, Hachai, they get about 300 manuscripts a year. They only publish four to six. So there's a little bit of wiggle room for negotiation, not much. I'm very happy with the experience. And for me, I look at it, it's like, it's supplementary. It's not my day job. It really gives me more of a sipuk, you know, like a satisfaction when I see children that are learning good midos or or learning concepts and parents stop me in the street. There was one book that came out a few months ago called Oops, I'm Sorry by Hachai, and parents are loving it. I don't stop getting responses. When something happened, the kid does something, and then it's so easy because you just start chanting, saying sorry is first, help to fix it, and then find a way to make sure it won't happen again. It's like you don't have to give speeches. It takes the edge out of it. So I really love what I do, but in terms of finances, I'm not an equal partner, and the artists also are getting paid a set fee. Super interesting. So you're very fortunate that you're one of the four to six manuscripts that gets selected out of 300. What do you think got you that edge? Was it connections? Obviously, I'm assuming your quality is great, but I'm sure other artists write great materials as well. So what do you think? So I don't, I, I don't know. And like I said, I've had plenty, plenty, plenty of rejected manuscripts. So I definitely know what it feels like and tastes like. I guess it's a combination. It's a combination of an idea and the way it's executed. I think that's what they're looking out for. It's actually interesting because of all my books that are published, only my rhyming ones have ever gotten accepted. I've wrote the manuscripts that are not rhyming and they they weren't accepted. And I'm like, oh, let me try something different. For some reason, I guess either because that's what sells, that's what the kids want to hear. They like the rhyme, they like the refrains or just that's the style that comes out. And that's it. I'm grateful to Hashem for any manuscript that is accepted. I'm always hoping, waiting, hearing. It's a very long process. From when the book is written until the book is in the stores, it really takes a long time. How long on average? Anywhere from a year to a few years. Like that book that I wrote about a baby of our own, I wrote it when my second son was born. 
And it came out like um, close to four years later when my third son was born. Perfect timing. It depends how long the illustrator takes, if she has other works lined up, et cetera. The editing process, it's art. So it's not necessarily always on a strict timeline. That's true. And I have heard that many of your books have been translated into other languages. Which are the primary languages they get translated into? So I have two books were translated into Russian, which was really, really, really special for my family. My father was born in Russia near Moscow. My grandmother, my grandparents raised my father in communist Russia, where they weren't allowed to practice Judaism openly. So for her to have a grandchild whose books, whose openly Jewish books are translated into Russian, it was very emotional. And then I also have a book translated into Hebrew. And who chose to translate the books? Was that a request you put in? Or is that something they recommended? No, actually, it was the publishers. They decided it. Yeah, one of my books is the same one that's translated into Hebrew is also in Russian. So I guess that was popular enough. So it's that one the, called in English, If I Went to the Moon, and it's translated into three languages. And they translate the rhymes as well, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. So they keep the pictures and it actually rhymes in the, that language. And it's a lot of fun when I do book reading with kids and I show it to them. Like, you know, I went to a school, Mazal Day school, and there were a lot of kids there that knew how to read Russian. They were so excited, and I can't even read it. <laughs> but they were like, oh, read the Russian one. But the truth is, you know, I have other works that have also been translated into other languages. Like, I write on the JewishWomen.org, which is the women's version of Chabad.org. So I have about 150 articles there, and a number of them have been translated into French and Spanish. And they get comments. I get a notification whenever there's a comment in an article of mine and I go to it and it's like in French and Spanish and it's like, go to Google Translate. It's really fun. That's really cool. So I would love to talk more about your articles that are geared toward women and the adult segment of our population. Uh, what are the hottest topics, I guess, that get the most traction? And what do you like writing about most? So I kind of have like three separate columns, two that are like considered complete, and I'm working on publishing them as books, and then one that I'm in the middle of working on now. So I'll just go through each of the three. The first one is meditations, daily spiritual meditations, based on the book of the Tanya, written by the first Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Schneir Zalman. It's really universal, because the topics in the column in the Tanya are, you know, about love of God, fear of God tackling depression, joy, the purpose of living, why we're here, the value of a mitzvah. So I definitely got a lot of feedback for that. And that's getting published by a publisher called MLC, Meaningful Life Center. So we're working on that book. And that was like one column, but it was like a specific, it was based on a book. So from beginning to end, I took the Tanya and I broke it down into meditations for women. I had another column where there's a lot of topics. It's not like based on a book. It's topics relating to women, marriage, parenting, stories of righteous women and lessons we could learn from them, from our mothers and different women throughout history. Anytime I found something inspiring, so that's a collection of about 100 on our articles and I'm also working on getting published. And my latest project, the one that's in the middle as we speak, is called Coaching Tips for Parents, Mentors, Coaches. And it's also based on Torah and Hasidus and spiritual tools, but it's actually coaching tips. I am a trained life coach, and it was very fascinating for me while I took the course and when I started working with people to see a lot of parallels. And I'm like, we have so much wealth 
in our Torah that could really help people in their in moving forward and, and, and overcoming. I'll give you an example. I actually turned this into a lecture last summer at the JLI retreat. I took the model of Parai, Maishu Rabinu, Eretz Yisrael, and Mitzrayim, right? Moses, Pharaoh, Israel, and Egypt. And I said, we're going to use this as a coaching model. And I actually practiced this with people. And I asked them, what's the biggest thing that's holding you back right now? What's your Egypt? People fill this in. You know, what are you struggling with? And we all have something, whether it's emotional, in life, in, in relationships, you know, what's your Egypt? And then we went through, what's your Israel? What would it look like? What's your promised land? What would it look like if, if you were able to overcome it? We all have these two voices in our head. We have the Pharaoh, the tyrant, the one who wants us to fail, the critic who's giving us all these negative voices. And then we have the Moses. We have our soul who's powerful and was connected to infinity. And when people wrote it down, the voice of Pharaoh, the voice of Moses, you actually could watch transformations happening. And then when you are going through that same struggle, I could identify, you know, the voice that says I'm going to fail, the voice that says, you know, what's the point? I'm so lonely. No one cares about me. That's Pharaoh. Bye. I don't need you. I want freedom. I'm going to listen and I'm going to find and develop that Moses inside of me. A little bit of Moses in me. I don't know if you're familiar with Eighth Day Song, a little bit of Moses in me. Yeah. I was inspired by that. That was one example that was an article, turned it into a lecture, but it's really trying to find sources and stories in our Torah that are really Egypt and going out of Egypt was never supposed to just be a one-time history thing. It's supposed to be in every generation, right? We say this in the Haggadah, the Chal Darvadar in every single generation, we're going out of our personal Egypts, our personal exiles to our personal redemption. So I really try to help women. And it's funny, people say, how do you write for kids and then for women and paint? For me, it's all the same thing. It's really trying to express spiritual and emotional truth in a creative way to the best of my ability. You've definitely thought this out, and I love how formulated this is, and it's so impressive that you're able to use different art forms to deliver your messages and make your impact on the world. And I really enjoy the Egypt-Israel strategy for coaching and for your book that you've been using. So that's super awesome. Tell me more about, it could be this one and the same, but it sounds like producing a coaching book. Is that what you do? Are you a coach for women? Is that your day job? Are you still teaching? So, no, I still do the extracurricular in the high school that I work in, in Beisrefka and Crown Heights, and I love it. I run the Shabbatones, and the, we have clubs and special day programs and speakers. Geo. Yeah, I work with my Geo girls, which the truth is it does fit in because we're always thinking of creative ways, whether it's a Hanukkah, a gig or a you know, how to bring out a program in an interesting way. I love what I do. So that's like my day job. I did get trained two summers ago as a life coach. I did take a few clients. It's definitely a part-time thing for me. I skills that I learned and that I'm developing helped in everyday life as well, whether it's with my children, with the people that I'm working with, with the awareness. So I stopped advertising, so to speak, and promoting myself currently as a coach. I don't have so much time, but when people reach out to me one-on-one, -on -one, I do the work. I do it with them. I do take clients, but my full-time, I have children. I have the job. I have camp. And I really want to emphasize this. For me, making time to create is not a luxury. I really need it. I need to be able to write. I try to go to the water to write. I sit in nature, Prospect Park, the water. It's not a luxury because when I don't create, I really suffer. Like I don't do well. 
I feel myself feeling down or my soul needs to express itself. And I'm very passionate about that. Like, even though I love my job, I still feel the need to have these other forms of expression. And I just want to encourage women that if this is what your soul needs, if you have the soul of an artist, if you need to sing, if you need to paint, if you need to write, it is a priority. Make the time for it. It's really, it's really important. So again, you know, the books and all these things, they're all my pet projects. I try to do them in a way that they're not pressurizing, which means not with deadlines. Like my articles for Chabad.org, no one's waiting for an article. I don't have a deadline. When I get to it, I could write it. So I could go weeks writing one once a week and I could go months where things are busy at work and I, I don't. It's like my pet projects that I get to when I can. That's very interesting because that's the opposite of how I work. If I don't set a deadline, nothing will happen. So it's all about my deadlines that I self-impose <laughs> and self-create, even if I have no one setting them on me. So that's an interesting thing you mentioned. I also think that the way you positioned yourself as I need to create, it's not something that is a luxury. I think anyone who's truly an artist, even if they're not actively publishing books or creating paintings, they have that need as well. And most women feel like they have to suppress it or deprioritize it because of their family obligations or what I'm finding is that eventually suppressing leads to explosion <laughs> and unhealthy habits that can come out of it and really nurturing your art whether you do it professionally or on a hobby level is something that's a necessity not a luxury as you put it 100% and also with my kids I do find that I have opportunities to express with them making a puppet show for them still brings out the creative funny side painting with them painting parties with my children, making up stories with them. I definitely also try to have opportunities to kind of have that creative and fun side with them and that joy with them. But yeah, I definitely would echo that and say that something that I really, I need it. My soul needs it. And I believe it's part of my mission here. It's not just to make me feel good. I believe God wants me to use whatever he gave me to touch other people, to teach children, to reach women, etc. Yeah, and I'll add more to that. It, you're mentioning the obligation or the responsibility aspect of this gift, and you're committing yourself to spending the time and putting in the work that it requires to. It's not just something that comes out of you. Most people need to sit down, put the time in, or write every day, or whatever their commitment is to their form of art. It could be developing new skills and investing in learning and training themselves yeah it's not something that just you allow to happen <laughs> most of the time it's a lot of effort and work right right it's making the time making the time allowing it actually that's cool today when I set my job up I set it up that Wednesday is my day off unless there's an event that day and this is really my day where I try my best to even this is a form of artistic creation and outlets and speaking to people try to paint. I try to, this is my day that I really try to focus on all these things that I really believe I need to do. I was always very inspired by the idea of the women that when they were preparing the curtains for the Mishkan, it says that they, they had a special way of preparing the thread while it was on the goat's back. They spun the wool while it was on the goat's back because then it was a, it created a shinier wool a more beautiful thread. 
And the Rebbe actually explains what did we learn from this idea that they use whatever talent that they had, not just to promote themselves and market themselves, which is really what social media does to us. Market yourself, promote yourself. The Rebbe says it wasn't about them. They took whatever skill they had and they used it to promote God, to make a house for God in the most beautiful fashion. I think that's really the message. Whatever talent that God has given us, he's given to us with the purpose of making him a beautiful, a beautiful house, a beautiful world, a world that recognizes him, a world that children have appreciation, where they have good midos and, and appreciating our val- values. For sure. I identify a lot with that. And that's why I've transitioned a lot from just creating my own content into coaching with the mission to empower women to pursue their arts and monetize their talents. So that's definitely been part of my involvement now. But I would love to hear more about your painting. Sure. So what it has evolved in until now is that a lot of the painting that I do ends up being, like I said before, for me, my house is full of my paintings. But the one thing that comes all together with monetizing, you spoke about monetizing my art, is that I run these programs called Art and Learns. Painting parties are a fad now. People like it. Plenty of women's circles and programs do that. So what I do is, for me, it works well together. I come to a group of women, women's circles, Rosh Chodesh. I just did one for two Bishvat a few weeks ago, where I actually teach a concept in Torah. And then we make a painting that's related or connected to it. And I want them to remember what they learned. When they see that painting of pomegranates on their wall, everything that we discussed and the depth and the beauty and what we could learn from pomegranates and how it relates to the mitzvahs of a Jew. So I found that that was a way to monetize it. Sometimes it's hard. It's a schlep suitcase of supplies and whatever. So I can't do it too often. But whenever I can, I go out. I love meeting different people, different communities. I was in Queens last week. I've been to Connecticut and just around in the tri-state area. And when I go around and I'm speaking and I'm painting, I was in, in Las Vegas. I did an art and learn also. It gives me life. I'm connect, it like comes all together, the speaking, the, the reaching people, the talking to people, the painting. And I see it brings life to people also. Like it, people's, their face shines, their, their, their whole, you see what the art, it's, and, and you have every single time I do an art and learn, there's always someone in the painting parties would be like, oh, so therapeutic. <laughs> it's true. It's calming. It's soothing. It's, soulful you know with slow music playing and it, it's really i appreciate being able to bring that joy to other people and you do speaking engagements as well that's another area where you probably monetize right so if it's local or in the community there are plenty of times where i don't like have a set fee or charge where it's just passionate and i have a message that's a share on chavez i want to just be able to give it and very often i will but especially if I'm flying somewhere or traveling and I'm taking off work or I need to arrange babysitting, like, it, yeah, it needs to be worth it financially. And I do a couple such trips a year, California, Florida, Canada, I was in Mequon. I do a few such trips and then, yeah, I need to monetize that. And I read this line actually once in a Mashbacha magazine, Asharchen wrote, I don't make Shaduchim in order to make money. I charge money so that I could keep making Shaduchim. And I thought that was a great line. We're not doing this in order to make money because money is not our end goal. We need to charge so that we could keep giving our message, so that we could take care of our families, that we could do what God wants. The end goal is not the money. The end goal is being able to raise our families, keep sharing God's message. And I think it totally changes things. And the whole perspective is different. 
Absolutely. And I don't know if you've listened to this podcast before, but the reason we talk about money a lot is because uh, artists very often, especially from especially women, have three or four disadvantages when it comes to monetizing their art form. And it's not like they're, if anything, they've done this for free or they've been burnt out or felt like a schmata when it came to providing their services or giving. And it comes to a point where why why do other people doing work get paid for it and we don't? So I would say it's not about the money. <laughs> it's about Absolutely. No, I believe it. Valuing yourself and be being able to continue doing what you're doing and offering it. Exactly. So that's why I have the confidence to charge whatever I need to be able to charge. In order to continue doing it, I can't do it for less. I can't. I can't. It takes so much energy out of me. It takes so much. So I didn't mean to imply that we shouldn't charge. What I meant to say that it actually made it easier to charge when my perspective changed and I'm not doing it in order to make money. That's not my end goal. I have to charge whatever I need to in order to keep doing what I love. And I love the way you just said that. And I feel like I skipped a little bit after your art and learn, which is so awesome. By the way, do you have food at those art and learns? Usually I'm coming to hosts, like let's say the Chabad and Great Neck or different, and they usually, they usually have food, they even have wine, they advertise it like that. Sometimes it's a couple's event. Sometimes it's just a women's night out, but they definitely turn it into like an enjoyable evening for everybody. So yeah, they're usually like the tuba shop party that I was just telling you, the painting party I did last week, there was all the fruits and the wines. It was, it was a great, people had a great experience and I'm grateful to be able to be part of that. And you do events for women and men when it comes to the art and learn and speaking engagements are just for women, right? So when it came to the art, the first time someone actually asked me to do a mixed group, I spoke to my Rav, I discussed it with him. I wouldn't do a mixed group in my community or in Crown Heights, but if it's a Chabad house environment and couples are coming, then I have done it. And in terms of speaking engagements, most of the speaking engagements are to women and especially in my community. I would say the exception is at JLI, the Jewish Learning Institute, at the JLI retreat. There are some mixed crowds, but even there, one of my talks was geared just for women. The other ones were mixed. And you know what? I prefer the women-only crowds. I really do. I like the feminine energy. I, I prefer it. Yeah, I definitely hear that. You're also able to customize what you're doing and target it to a niche instead of making it more general. So it's really cool how you combine all your different talents together. And I would also add to the fact that you teach, you add that Dvar Torah element. I find that I outsource that part. Like I have my aunt who I consider Talmudah Chachamah, my sister, my mother, my grandmother. <laughs> and then they they bring in psukim ideas. Sometimes we make a whole Dvar Torah around the song. We have the verse from one part of Tanakh and then the chorus from a different part. We put it together. There's a whole Megillah <laughs> to explain it. So it's so cool how you are able to supply your own teaching with the art form that you bring it in together. Does it take you a long time to prepare? For example, the art and learn. Do you just come up with ideas on your own or do you prepare? So yeah, it takes me time. I research. I learn. I love learning. But it's so interesting that you were saying that you rely on other people. I think that has to do with my upbringing also. Like we were brought up with this idea. The Rebbe always used this phrase, which is giving credit to the Lubavitch Rebbe, as you can tell. He's impacted my life. If you know Aleph, teach Aleph. 
You know, we tend to think that, oh, she knows a lot, so let's leave the Dvar Torah to her. What do I know? But he really empowered us that whatever you know, you could share. You've learned something that touched you. You know something. Whatever you know, you can share with someone who doesn't. And it kind of empowers me that, yeah, I'm sure there are people who might be smarter and more knowledgeable, and that's great. But I have whatever ability Hashem gave me, and I love learning. I love learning on Shabbos. I love taking down Svarim. So for me, it really does all come together. I actually did something a few months ago that, yeah, it was in January that I, for me, it was like heaven on earth. I was flown down to Jacksonville, Florida, to this high school, tiny high school, six girls. But I had the best time with them. They were such sweethearts. What did we do? It was like a full day program. So we learned a little bit. We had a little workshop. And then we went to the beach and we did some meditations based on my, that I was telling you before, the Tanya meditations, about different things you could think of about loving God, fearing God, but just the setting and closing your eyes and thinking about it. It was so soothing. And then we ended off with like an art and learn, like where we painted something, we painted the hotel. It was like a beautiful day, almost like a retreat. I did it once for women also. I called it a Tanya retreat, but it kind of felt like everything's coming together. The learning, the workshops, the painting, the and, and people really like experiential experiences. It really goes hand in hand together, like our spiritual health, our emotional health, like what our, you know, taking care of what our soul wants. It just ends up having ramifications in every aspect of our life. Yeah, they totally complement each other. And just to add to what you said, I outsource some of it, but the amount of content I create, I definitely have a lot that I do on my own. It's just I like to make things more interesting <laughs> and try new things. That's fine. <laughs> I think we all like to get a dose of inspiration from other people from time to time. So what's next for you? This just all sounds amazing. You sound super happy. We haven't spoken about any personal struggles you've had, <laughs> which is actually something we always talk about on the show. So it's interesting because if you remember how I started off, I started off my writing of my kids' books. I was in a very hard place. All this expression has actually been a tool to keep me in a healthy place, emotionally and spiritually. So on social media, everybody's life is perfect. In reality, we all struggle. I, I struggle. It's hard. It's hard to raise a family and juggle work and have a lot of pressure and deadlines. And I just know for me that these are things that keep me on track and in tune. In terms of what's next, I am working on getting my books published for women. Like that's what I'm really working on now. You know, like I mentioned the one about Tanya, the one about the meditations for women. So those are the biggies right now. And then there's day camps coming up. Like I always have my regular day-to-day -day life. This morning I went to my son's playgroup for his birthday party and straight from that to here. And, and, and last week was a different kid's birthday. There's, you know, and then there's doctor's appointments, a dentist appointment. So it's always really keeping track of my goals, where I'm up to reassessing and also keeping track of my priorities. My family's my priority. The creativity is my priority. My work is my priority because I, I have to be responsible. So, you know, you mentioned also about struggle. I think one of the biggest things that we women need to be doing for each other is really supporting each other, being able to be honest, being able to be open. I have great friends that I'm so grateful for. I have a mentor. This is something also that was instituted in Chabad, and I'm grateful to the Rebbe for instituting this idea that everyone should have a Selah Harav, not just like a Rav, like a rabbi, like a family Rav, but a mentor a spiritual mentor. And, and she really does help me and guide me. And I do reach out to her and I'm grateful for this concept that we have. So I would say in 
navigating or overcoming challenges or struggles, we all need each other. We need to be able to be a support. And I'm sometimes in a position where I feel blessed and I'm able to help other people. But at the same time, I also need that support. And that's why we need to be that circle of support for each other where we're able to flow and be there for each other. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more with this. I want to add one thing you said about like the struggle and the, something that really resonated with me is that there was an artist, Hendel Hanok Lieberman. So he actually once wrote into the Rebbe that he was feeling depressed and the Rebbe responded. It was fascinating in a letter that I read that when you look at art, there's the light and there's the shadows. Now, at first glance, what's a shadow? Like in real life, a shadow looks like it's blocking light. But when you see in a painting, what do the shadows do? They actually enhance the light, right? What makes something look beautiful in 3D is when it's shaded. If it was just one dimensional, it wouldn't look beautiful. So the shadow becomes something that actually enhances the painting. And the Rebbe told him that, that this is really a reflection on life, that our shadows, our difficult challenges, at first glance, seem to block our light, but are really there to enhance our light. What good could we get out of it? How can we become more empathetic people? How can we grow? How can we become more connected to our source, to Hashem? How can we be more sensitive to other people? And turning the shadows of our life into really seeing how it can make our painting of our life, our canvas of our life, a more beautiful, enriched experience. So that was something very meaningful yeah. to me. It goes hand in hand with the Japanese concept of kinzuki when a, a dish breaks and then they use the gold, the crust. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I saw that. So our challenges and struggles enhance us and make us more valuable and make us stronger. Yes. yes. And more beautiful. It was so great having you on the show, Sarah. Seems like your day job really enhances and goes hand in hand with everything else you do because you have that creative expression also in the in a mentoring yeah, type good. of light. You're not viewed as a teacher, more as the fun extracurricular type of person, which is just sounds like you found yourself and you have the answers to all the questions and all the issues in the world. No, there's never, we're always searching, always on a search. There's always more to discover. That's true. But I'm grateful for where I'm at and it's going to keep evolving. 100%. So how can people find you? I have a website that I made two years ago right after I had my baby when I was home and like <laughs> itching for things to do. So probably I should update it. But yeah, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram or on my website. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on the show and sharing your story. Thank you for giving me the opportunity and this platform and for encouraging other women artists to really bring meaning to the world and to each other. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for sticking around until the end. This is The Francisca Show, a JewishCoffeeHouse.com podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share this podcast with your friends. Show them how to access the podcast. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, make sure to leave The Francisca Show a good review and subscribe. Next week, we have an episode with Mayan Davis. And I will also be hosting a coaching session on this podcast, a demo of what I'm doing now with my career in serving and supporting female artists, creatives, and entrepreneurs. So if you would like to be considered for this demo coaching session on air, please do go to my website, franciscamusic.com slash guest, fill out the questionnaire, and you will be considered. 
I'm so looking forward. If you would just like a private discovery call with me to discuss your dreams, goals, and vision for your art form, for your work, do not hesitate to reach out to me as well. You can do that by going to franciscamusic.com slash coaching. Thanks again so much for being a part of this initiative, a part of this cause, listening to this podcast, helping spread the word, reaching out, sending feedback. I could not be here without you. Happy Purim. See you next week.